Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm pleased to welcome Diana Fu, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto, cross-appointed at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, to discuss her book, Mobilizing Without the Masses, Control and Contention in China, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Diana. Thank you very much, Susan. Your book is both a careful ethnography of Chinese labor organizing and an important commentary on contentious politics, drawing on and challenging classic political science literature. Um, You ask how organizations mobilize popular contention under a repressive political conditions in an authoritarian state such as China. And instead of facilitating collective action through protests or strikes, you show how Chinese activists coach citizens to challenge authorities one by one so that they simultaneously lower the risks of organizing and empower the workers. Um, I, I'd like to start off by, by finding out a bit about how you came to this project and what made you so interested in these labor movements. Sure. Um, there's actually quite an interesting backstory to how I became interested in these organizations, because when I began my field work, I had no idea that there were these informal labor organizations in China. I'd always, though, been interested in the plight of migrant workers in China. And I, I suppose part of that is because I myself, although I was born in a large Chinese metropolis, I'd emigrated to uh, Canada as a child. And you know, and I, my family actually emigrated to Winnipeg of all places in the 1990s, uh, which you can imagine was not super diverse, racially diverse. So I was, um, you know, one of two Asian kids in my elementary school, and I'd always felt like an outsider. So I feel like the experience of that kind of marginalization really stuck with me and attracted me to studying migrant workers in China. And My work with migrant workers actually began a long time ago when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Minnesota. At that time, I worked with one of China's very first labor organizations serving migrant women, and it was called Rural Women Know-It-All, and it was run by an ex-Women's Federation official. Now, when I was doing my doctorate degree at Oxford University in 2009, I went back to China thinking, well... I continued to track the plight of migrant workers and look at worker activism. There was a lot of strikes going on, a lot of protests going on. So that's really what I thought I was going to be working on. But as you know, as as things turn out, I was um, by chance invited to be an interpreter for um, for labor conference uh, in China in South China, and it was really there that I encountered a number of informal worker-run NGOs that were claiming to fight for workers' rights. And they were doing so independently from the state-run union. So just as a quick backgrounder, China's 280 million 
migrant workers were and still are only legally represented by only one official state union, which is the All-China Federation of Trade Unions, and independent unionization is banned. So the fact that these groups that I'd met in southern China were acting on their own, independently of the state-run union, that fact alone was really intriguing to me. And what's more, uh, unlike many NGOs in China at the time who were at least registered as businesses, many of these organizations were not registered at all. And so this meant that they were essentially operating illegally and under the radar. The other thing that intrigued me was that when you met these people, these leaders of labor organizations, they just didn't feel like your typical NGO leader. Um, They were led by these very charismatic migrant workers, many of them who had very limited formal education themselves, but they had a great deal of experience, a great deal of personal knowledge, grassroots knowledge about how to deal with with bosses, how to deal with um, with local state officials that were being difficult in terms of not giving them the rights that they deserve. So they were informally called by other staff members as big bosses, the lao da, and local scholars that I talked to even described them as nonviolent migrant gains or triads. So I thought, huh, this is not your typical NGO. So what are they? Um, and, and furthermore, what, what intrigued me was that they were closely monitored by state security. So these, these uh, leaders of migrant, these migrant leaders would talk about how sometimes plainclothes policemen, like plainclothes state agents, sometimes sat in on their meetings or events, meaning that whatever it is they were doing with workers was somehow threatening to the state. So I thought, oh, gosh, I, I have to, you know basically change my research topic and, and put on my researcher hat and, and, um, and study these groups. But the problem was that when you asked these worker leaders and you just interviewed them about, you know, how do you organize? What are your ultimate goals? You wouldn't get very far because, and in fact, I didn't get very far initially because they, it would inevitably tell you that, well, we provide legal aid and consultation to workers and B, we provide Um, We promote legal consciousness and we promote unity and solidarity among workers. And so, in fact, they did all of these things, but they did much more than these things. And I had I unquestionably believed uh, in these initial interviews and took the interview notes home, I would not have written this book that I did. But what they were really doing was something that many years later, after analyzing the notes um, that I took, uh, they were doing what I call mobilizing without the masses. At the start of the book, you tell a story about a a Sichuan car factory worker uh, going in to do some negotiation. And I think it actually sets up a lot of the, the, um, the ground that you cover in in the book, and I'm wondering if you can in, if you can start with that, just so that we get an idea of what this looks like in the kind of personal space. Sure. So uh, the the anecdote that I give in the beginning of the book um, was of a worker, uh, and I call her Ms. Chain. That's not her real name, but she was in many ways typical of the workers that I had met in the field, in that she was injured uh, pretty badly um, during 
uh, she was working at an auto plant and was injured pretty badly. Um, her whole arm was, um, uh, was injured and had, if she didn't get treatment, um, she could be, um, you know, handicapped forever. So, and her, and, and like many workers in her situation, her boss was unwilling to pay for her medical expenses. So at the time, uh, she and I spent, you know, a whole day chasing after bureaucrats in three different agencies, uh, in, a, in uh, three different local agencies. And I watched there as she was being dismissed by one local official after another. Uh, this was typical um, behavior, to, bureaucratic behavior in China and in many other places. It's called kicking the ball, kicking the ball to another official. So finally, she got so fed up, uh, she went to the office of the lo- local labor bureau chief and she said, if you don't solve my problem, I'm going to take extreme measures. So now to the bureau chief or to any bystander or even a journalist, if one was there at the, at the time, this might have looked like any desperate worker at the end of her rope. But what they didn't know uh, was this, what, was that actually a labor activist in one of these labor organizations that she had been in touch with earlier was actually coaching her via text messaging and telling her when and where and how to make these threats. And even more importantly, when she made these threats to take extreme measures, the bureau chief himself immediately understood that this was a challenge to his authority. So we actually uh, watched him uh, as he dispatched, immediately he dispatched a labor inspection team to her factory. And a week later, she received her injury compensation. And the labor union, which had previously just filed her claims in a desk, even visited her and gave her some money. So, so why do I call this a form of mobilization and not just individual action? Well, the most important element of this story is that the process of collective action that took place was actually disguised behind a facade of individualized action. And this is what I call in an article of mine in CPS, uh, disguised collective action. So the, it, this story illustrates the, um, the process of disguised collective action because to any bystander who was watching at the time, Ms. Chang would have just seemed like any other worker at the end of her rope, uh, not being coached by anyone. But actually behind the scenes, there was an organizational backbone. There was an organization behind her that was providing moral and tactical support to coach her on exactly what to do. And so this, this, it's this, or, it's this element of both organized and atomized that makes this um, a form of what I call mobilizing without the masses. And if I might just talk a little bit more segue into um, the concept of mobilizing without the masses in general, I think of this as a um, as a counterintuitive way for NGOs to organize in a repressive environment like China. And by by counterintuitive, I mean that it's different from the way that NGOs might organize in liberal settings. So in the U.S. or Canada, for example, one of the key roles of civil society groups is really to get people out onto the streets and to organize them to protest or go on strike. And the power behind that kind of movement, which 
we call social movements, is really the power to disrupt. It's essentially a form of mobilizing the masses because the more people you have, the more disruptive the power. But in a liberal state like China and in many other illiberal states, NGOs are not allowed to play such a role. They may be allowed to provide social services like education for children or sanitation or environmental um, activism, but forget about organizing large numbers of people to protest. That would be akin to political suicide for an organization. So then the central puzzle that the book tackles through the empirical study of labor organizations in China is actually a more, it's actually a broader puzzle, which is how do weak activists, weak NGO activists that are poorly resourced and operating in a very repressive environment, how do they organize when they are not allowed to? When it's illegal for NGOs to rally the crowds, to take to the streets, to demand social change, what do they do? And so based on the study of labor activists in China between 2009 and 2011, um, you know, I basically discovered that there was a different type of mobilization that is mobilizing without the masses. And that instead of coaching workers to, you know, to take to the streets, to take large scale collective action, these NGO activists were actually coaching them to claim their rights one by one in a more atomized fashion. And one of the advantages of this kind of organization is that they were able to lower the political risks of the organization itself because they weren't weren't overtly organizing groups uh, or organizing workers to block traffic or to surround a government building collectively. They actually lowered the political risk of organizing. So you can think of this conceptually uh, mobilizing without the masses as lying in between two forms of organization, two forms of mobilization that we are familiar with. The first form is what I described that happens in, in social movement societies, which is what Tilly, Tarot, and McAdam uh, calls the dynamic of, um, of, of contention, right? The dynamic of mass mobilization, where you have people that are grieved, they form organizations, these organizations mobilize greater numbers of people to protest and social change happens. And on the other hand, uh, we also know of uh, individualized forms of contention that James Scott famously described in his book, uh, Weapons of the Weak, in which you have um, people that are disadvantaged, but instead of organizing into groups, they simply challenge officials or challenge the slaveholders or whoever it is that they're being oppressed by individually. And he calls that form of organizing or that form of activism weapons of the weak. So it'd be like foot dragging, um, slowing down at work, um, even even slave um, slaves who are stealing chickens from their slaveholder, from, from their slave masters. All of these are individualized forms of contention that um, basically don't provide a leader for, for authorities to be able to round up. And so what you have in mobilizing without the masses conceptually is something that stands in between these two forms of well-known conventional forms of mobilization. Because in mobilizing without the masses, you have the aggrieved individuals, but uh, instead of acting alone individually, 
they, they do form organizations, just like in conventional social movements, they do form organizations. However, instead of these organizations uh, triggering or um, amassing further collective action, they actually coach people to then individualize or atomize their contentious actions. So you have something that sits in between uh, social movement organizations, social movement contention, and individualized action like weapons of the week. Does that make any sense? So the case of China is is fascinating, and I, I find the book to be really rich in how you combine the ethnography and how you embedded with these organizations and really got to know the people combined with the theory that comes from political science. And I was thought that the way in which that you place yourself within the theory, but also challenge the theory was, was really well done. Um, I'm not a China specialist and some of our audience is, and some is not. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why contemporary China is such an instructive case for interrogating how one would organize under duress, and also tell us a little bit about what civil society means in the Chinese context. Sure. I think China is an interesting case because it is the world's largest and most powerful authoritarian state. And so it's interesting to see what grassroots organizations are able to do under that environment. So my fieldwork took place uh, in, under the previous administration where civil, civil society organizations were given a bit of space to maneuver. But what was interesting about it was that while a lot of civil society organizations were able to provide um, public goods and services to the state, what the state really didn't want them to do was to get involved in contentious collective action. And so that's why I think it's really interesting to look at China as a case for how do organizations mobilize when they're not allowed to. Because a lot of times we see in the media, there's a, there is coverage of protests, of large-scale protests and large-scale labor strikes that happen in China. But what we don't see uh, uh, coverage of or actually happening very often is, uh, is organizations that get involved in um, helping workers or in helping other people organize. And that's because that's a red line that organizations cannot cross in China is to get involved in collective action. And I can give you some examples of that happening um, if you're interested, but uh, we can. No, sure. And, and give us also an idea. Um, in the book, you talk about the spectrum of organizations, which you divide into two different sectors. So I think it'd be helpful to get some of that out as well. Sure. Yeah. At the time, um, I, in the book, I talk about these groups that are more um, sort of above ground versus groups that are underground. And so the above ground groups are the ones that I um, that provide social services to the state that really don't challenge um, the state in any way in terms of threatening social stability, in terms of mobilizing people to take contentious collective action. And there's a lot of those groups that and those groups still exist under the current administration. But the 
focus of the book was actually on groups that were um, that were illegal, and um, these these organizations um, challenged social stability in that they would organize workers to either stage small scale flash protests. And these pro- by flash protests, I meant that sometimes um, activists would organize a group of workers to um, to, to, to raise a banner um, protesting uh, in front of a government building, but their flash protest because it would only last a couple of seconds or maybe 30 seconds before they scattered because they knew if they stayed there longer that they would be, um, they would face sanctions. And so then they would take that uh, flash protest and carry it elsewhere. And so that was a kind of um, threatening social stability because they were amassing people to, um, to, to protest and they, but they only did it long enough uh, for maybe a journalist to take a photo of them um, and circulate it on social media, but they wouldn't stay very long for um, for them to be able to be uh, to be scattered by the authorities. And so that was also one example, another example of a form of mobilizing without the masses. So it seems like on the one hand, um, there's. There is there is knowledge on the part of the government, or in particular on the local authorities, when there's local protest, um, so that there's some sort of a line there between uh, the this innovative organizing that is going on, this coaching, the sending of the text message to somebody who's having a conversation with uh, the owner of a factory or a, a, or a boss, uh, a manager. And then this repression that you're describing as well. But there seems to be some sort of a compromise going on between full repression and openness. And I was wondering if you can address that a little bit. I mean, that you're saying the PRC is very afraid of instability. Um, but how is this sort of compromise happening? Yeah, that's a it's a really good question. Um, it's a question that I thought about for a long time, especially when I was writing the conclusion of the book, which is really talking about this political compromise. Because I called these groups sort of operating underground, but they really weren't operating underground because the state knew about them. There were state agents that um, infiltrated these groups and knew exactly what they were doing. So it's a political compromise in the sense that these groups knew that they cannot cross the line of political acceptability and acceptability by organizing masses of people that they could only coach workers one by one to challenge the state. And in doing so, they were actually tacitly recognizing or tacitly abiding by uh, by the lines of the boundaries that the state set. And so in that sense, what they were doing, mobilizing without the masses, was indeed a form of political compromise. But on the other hand, I also thought, well, it's not completely compromised because they were actually, they were doing mobilization. It's just that that form of mobilization in terms of coaching workers behind the scenes to even recognize that, hey, I have rights. I have rights to injury compensation. I have rights to get my wages on time, that this kind of transformative thinking, this kind of consciousness raising was a form of mobilization, even if we can't count it materialistically, even if we um, don't think of that kind of mobilization normally when we think about claiming rights. And so I thought that what they were doing was um, both a political compromise, but also a form of genuine mobilization. 
What I also think is fascinating in the book is that you really push it beyond atomized rights. You, you seem to be saying that as these groups are helping an individual or small groups of individual individuals um, negotiate, that at your their, that discussion that they're having both with the coaches and then in this moment of negotiating their rights creates a sense of belonging to a larger community of migrant workers. So even without a strike, even without a public protest in which we can look at each other, which is often part of the form of a public protest, it's not simply for those you're protesting against, but it it creates a sense of belonging of seeing your fellow um, workers, that this is both, that it is both about activating people's rights, but it also seems to be about, about growing a community. Did I, did I get that right in the book? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Susan. Um, and I think that's a, a very key element to the type of mobilizing that I'm talking about. So let me just give you um, a quick example from the, um, the last a few chapters of the book when I talk about an organization that um, uses what I call discursive action to fight for workers' rights. So instead of organizing workers to actually assemble on uh, on the ground, what they what this organization did was try to change the language with which workers themselves, as well as journalists, as well as normal people, use to describe migrant workers. So. Typically, um, migrant workers are considered, um, are, are spoken of as um, peasant workers. And this is a very derogatory term. And it sort of leaves them in the limbo of being, they're, they're not really peasants and they're not really workers. So they're peasant workers. And so what this organization um, tried to do was they actually created a workers dictionary uh, that says, no, we're not peasant workers, we are actually new industrial workers. We are new citizens. We're the new proletariat of the city. And this is how we ought to be talking about ourselves. And so through the creation of a new um, of a new discourse, of a new language used to describe this community, what they were trying to do was trying to build a sense of citizenship consciousness um, that workers are uh, are were and are critical to China's development and modernization. And that they were really here to stay in the cities. Uh, and so I think that kind of community building, that kind of consciousness raising is a very key component of the mobilization that I'm talking about. Um, and just to be clear for those people who are China specialists listening, you were looking at two clusters, one in Beijing and one in the Pearl River Delta. Is, is there anything more you want to say about the particulars of, of the groups that you selected or why those particular areas? Yeah, those two particular areas were areas where migrant workers con uh, congregated. And so they were the two largest clusters where labor organizations were. And what was interesting about that variation is that in Beijing, um, one of my informants described it as the Beijing organizations um, are like nails. So they would stay in there for a long time. They wouldn't do things that were that challenging to the state. They were um, above ground organizations. Most of them were. And they kind of made, um, made sort of long-term sustainable changes 
such as the um, uh, discursive action that I talked about. And whereas in the South, you had organizations that the informant described as explosives in that they were a lot more radical. There was a lot of, there are a lot of factory workers as the manufacturing hub of China's in the South. And so they were, there was a culture of taking collective action. There was a culture of, um, of threatening social stability of organizing. There was a culture of organizing worker activism. And so you really saw the sort of variation in terms of, um, uh, nails groups like nails in the in the north and um, groups like explosives in the south you know it's fascinating and when you when you were working with these organizations who did they think you were did they think that you were an academic researcher did they view you as a canadian how how did they understand you and to what extent did you establish trust with them or uh, and how and how and how did you do that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question of positionality that um, a lot of ethnographers, in particular, who do long-term immersive participant observation, have to deal with. And I think I was pretty forthright with all of them that I was a doctoral student studying at Oxford. Uh, but I really think two two aspects of my um, positionality uh, really helped to establish trust. And one of them was that. I am ethnically Chinese and I still, I, I speak Chinese as my native language. And so I think that really helped um, sort of establish an affinity with that group. And the other thing was gender, actually, um, because most of these uh, men, um, most of the activists who were in these groups were were men. And I think there was a, a certain macho culture to these groups in that all the leaders were men. A lot of the clientele was men. If they had any women in the groups, it was uh, the woman was the secretary of the group. And so I think to some extent, they really didn't think much of me um, uh, in, in, in the sense that they would have reacted to me differently had I been um, sort of an older male expert that was in the organization. So I think um, to some extent, the, the man explaining that happened really helped an ethnographer uh, take note of um, of what was going on. Well, that's a fascinating use of uh, discrimination and uh, um, gender stereotyping for, for the purpose of creating this incredible book because the access is so good, the stories are so compelling, uh, just as a sort of editorializing here. The writing is so clear in this book. Uh, this is something that anybody can pick up and read without specialized information. You explain your terms along the way, both the political science terms and the literature, but also by clarifying the context for people who are not China scholars, um, so it's beautifully done in that in that way, um, as as the best ethnographies are. So really, really fabulous. Thank you, Susan. You use a term um, centered entrepreneurialism in the first part of the book, and you've sort of covered what it is. But I wanted to give you an opportunity if you wanted to flesh that out just a little bit more as to what you mean by that. Well, censored entrepreneurialism is itself um, a sort of a paradoxical or oxymoronic term because we think of entrepreneurs as uh, innovative. And in in many ways, these organizations and the activists 
were innovating along the way. They took some of the experiences they had in dealing with bosses and dealing with labor contracts, and they they had to basically feel their way into, into doing activism. But at the same time, they had to be censored because, again, they knew that they could not cross this line of organizing collective action. Uh, large-scale collective action. And if I might just um, give a brief example of what happened after I left the field. So I left the field in 2011. And around 2014, 2015, some of these groups uh, shifted in their tactic from mobilizing without the masses to mobilizing with the masses. And that was really interesting because um, if you Uh, Remember, during that time, there were a number of large-scale labor protests that happened in South China and inside factories that were supplying uh, athletic shoes to companies like Nike and Adidas. And these were large-scale protests that happened, and some of the... um, and they, they didn't happen on their own because some of the organizations and labor activists that before were staying away from organizing large scale strikes were actually responsible for coaching these workers in these factories to do collective bargaining. And so this is why I say they shifted from mobilizing without the masses to with the masses. And the consequence of that shift was that in 2015, I think it was December, a dozen of these organizations, um, leaders were rounded up by the police, they were detained, and their organizations were completely shuttered. And to my knowledge, very few of them, if any, have opened since then. And so I tell this story, um, Susan, because I think it really illustrates that um, there is really a, a line of political acceptability in China. And that is, do not, if you're an organization, do not cross over into collective action. No, I, I think the book makes it so clear that these groups are responding in this incredibly innovative way to the circumstance that they're in, and that they can, in fact, create this really unorthodox form of mobilization that is so powerful. But that story, of course, reminds us of just how fine a line that they're walking. No, it's 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 remarkable work. Um, what 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 project are you working on now? Where 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 are you? Are you continuing with this? Are you on to another book project? Yeah, um, I am. I am working on a project that is sort of similar in theme, but different empirically. In that, I'm looking at how um, how citizens in an authoritarian state in China, like China, behave. So it's a, it's a project. Uh, on authoritarian citizenship. And one of the first um, papers that has come out of this uh, project is uh, co-authored with Greg Distelhorst in Perspectives on Politics, where we theorize different ways in which authoritarian citizens talk to their unelected officials. And, and through those, um, through their, their speech and the way of talking, we theorize three different models of authoritarian citizenship. And we did this because it's become a lot harder to do fieldwork um, the, way, the way that it was done when I was in the field for various reasons um, that, that, that I won't get to now. Um, what we did was we looked at a sample, a nationally representative sample of letters to the mayor that um, ordinary Chinese people wrote. 
to demand all sorts of changes um, from fixing their roads to, you know, getting medical assistance to um, getting jobs. And we looked at how people talk to their unelected officials, what language they use to try to demand accountability from officials that can't, they can't even vote out of office. And we came up with, um, through looking at the language of, um, of that, we came up with three ideal types of authoritarian citizenships. Uh, so legal authoritarian citizenship, social, social, uh, socialist legal authoritarian citizenship, and subjective or subject, um, subject authoritarian citizenship. No, that's not the categories are sort of overlap with uh, a piece that you wrote last week in foreign policy, which I'd love for you to talk about just a little bit, um, talking about COVID-19 and the extent to which this theme of maintaining social stability and the dread of chaos um, of the CCP is impacted on the population as a whole. And I'd I'd wonder if you just summarize the argument a little bit for everyone. And I I know that it's been some time since this book was completed. And I think this is a nice way of moving some of your findings into uh, present day politics. Sure. Uh, So the piece in foreign policy is really talking about China's playbook for controlling chaos. So I was thinking about um, what is what is the underlying political ideology that drives the Chinese response to the coronavirus? And I think that underlying all of this surveillance, all of this um, rapid response, the construction of hospitals, is really this fear of chaos. And by fear of chaos, uh, I don't mean just that the government is afraid of chaos because every government is afraid of chaos and wants to establish order. But I think one of the real... um, uh, sort of successes or triumphs of the of the Chinese Communist Party has been to convince ordinary people, uh, even activists in some cases, um, that that order is the, the 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 highest public good that the party can provide, and order is it should trump liberty. Order should trump everything because if we had chaos, then nobody would be benefiting. Nobody would be people would be out of jobs. Um, the economy wouldn't grow um, and, and, and things would just collapse. And so I think that this, I, this central idea of chaos has been really ingrained in the thinking of ordinary people. So for instance, when Chinese people um, think or read about think, uh, social movements like ones that happen in Hong Kong, what you often see in the news is that um, it's, ca- it's not called a social movement. It's called um, sort of a violent riot. A moving chaos. Those literally translated it as moving chaos, and so I think the response to the coronavirus is really, um, you know, it's it's really nothing new in terms of um, the way that the government has responded to it. The fact that Dr. Li Wenliang um, uh, was silenced initially when he tried to expose the uh, expose the um, the virus. Uh, is is a part of a longstanding playbook in the Chinese um, state, which is to um, to clamp down on people that don't follow the party, don't they do not toe the party line, and this chaos, um, yeah, is exhibited in various spheres. But I think that 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 has really driven the Chinese response to, to the coronavirus. Do you think the COVID nineteen will affect 
labor movements and the labor organizing that you describe in in the book will will more attention to this chaos make the government less likely to allow the kind of compromises that you're describing in the book? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I I don't have the answer to that. I think it's still too early to tell, but given that the Chinese economy is already slowing down, um, I think it'll have a significant impact on labor's uh, and migrant workers across China. Now, to the extent to which um, this will impact their form of activism, I think if anything, you would see activism that is more and more like mobilizing without the masses or disguised form of action rather than um, overtly moving into um, helping workers strike or take mass action because um, the current regime has been increasingly repressive towards that kind of contention. Well, thank you so much, Diane. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I very much enjoyed reading this book, uh, which is just clearly written, well-argued, has fantastic examples and uh, really nice graphics, actually, as well, that that really bring the reader through. Um, So thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you very much, Susan. So Mobilizing Without the Masses, Control and Contention in China, written by Diana Fu, is available from Cambridge University Press. You can find it on the Cambridge website, Uh, You can find it through Bookshop, which will take you to independent bookshops that are near your location. I know a lot of people can't go into bookshops right now, but we're encouraging listeners to find the places. I'll give a shout out to Labyrinth Books here in New Jersey that will mail the books directly to your home. Obviously, it's also available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but we hope you'll support the local bookstores in, um, in this time when it's hard for them. Well, thanks again, Diana, and best of luck with the next project. Thank you.